Well, if you would, please open your Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We're told in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so it is because of God's love to us that we are in Christ, that we have salvation, that we are part of the body of Christ, part of the church. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we have described for us what love looks like, what love is to be in the body of Christ, in the church, as we reflect God's love to us, the love of God that has been poured into our hearts in the Holy Spirit. And so I'm thrilled to come to this passage this evening, and as we've been doing on Tuesday evenings, we're looking at various passages of Scripture in different portions of the Bible, uh, just to be encouraged with the harmony of Scripture, and uh, even to whet our appetites as a new year approaches for reading through the whole Word of God and delving into the Word of God personally to discover the riches that the Lord has for us there in Christ Jesus. And so often as we delve into the Word of God personally on a consistent basis, it's incredible how well that ends up merging with what is delivered week after week from the pulpit. It whets our appetites for the Word of God preached. And so it's a very healthy thing for us spiritually to be exposing ourselves to the whole counsel of God and come to worship with God's people and hear God's Word, having exposed our own minds throughout the week to the Word of God. And so I hope it'll be encouraging for us in that way what we're doing here uh, on these Tuesday evenings. But let's go ahead and begin tonight by reading this wonderful chapter, and I'm actually going to begin with the last statement in chapter 12, and then read on through 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, I will show you still, or I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, 
it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The theme that we'll work with from this chapter this evening is that love is the highest expression of life in Christ. Love is the highest expression of life in Christ. God's Word directs believers, those in Christ, to ascend to the exhilarating heights of Christ-likeness. And in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so since love justifies the profession of faith in Christ, like James says, how our works justify our faith. In other words, our works demonstrate that we have faith. So in that sense, since love justifies the profession of faith in Christ, it's pretty important that we understand what biblical love is. Probably, I'm going to make a a guess here, speculate a little bit, but probably when we hear love, there's an image that comes to our mind. And I'm going to guess that the image, the most common image that comes to our mind is a heart. I don't know. Maybe I'm far off on that. But that is what has happened as we think about love. We, we reduce it to an image, uh, often exacerbated on February 14th. And biblical love is much more than that, much different even than that. One commentator, Richard Hayes, makes this statement about 1 Corinthians 13. The first task of the interpreter is to rescue the text from the quagmire of romantic sentimentality. Paul did not write about agape in order to rhapsodize about marriage. He was writing about the need for mutual concern and consideration within the church with special reference to the use of spiritual gifts in worship. And he's spot on in that last statement because what we have in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is Paul working the dysfunctional Corinthian church through spiritual gifts. And we're not going to take the time tonight to get into all the details of what he is dealing with beyond pointing out that division had entered the Corinthian church because of jealousy about different gifts. People were desiring uh, gifts that they thought would make them important. 
They were viewing spiritual gifts as an opportunity for their own personal advancement, for their own uh, display of spirituality quite apart from the intended work of spiritual gifts or the intended purpose of spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ to the glory of God and for the good of believers. And so another commentator, Rob Garland, points out that Paul seeks to diffuse the Corinthians' competitive notions about gifts, which appears to have engendered conflict among those who deem their particular gift more crucial than another's. So you can imagine walking into the Corinthian church on Sunday and there were some people that were very proud about their supposed spiritual superiority because of the gifts that they were able to exercise. And so Paul is, is dealing with that divisive mindset, that competitive mindset, clarifying the unity of the body in chapter 12, helping to refine an understanding of particularly the sign gifts that, by the way, are no longer existent in chapter 14. But in the middle of that, at the core of that, he says at the end of chapter 12, I will show you a still more excellent way. And he delves into this wonderful statement about love. Love that reflects Christ. Love that reflects the character of God who is love. One other note to consider as we think about the context of this book. Corinthians deals with some pretty rugged issues, pretty raw issues within the church. But we need to understand that it was a complete letter. And so everything that Paul deals with in the book of Corinthians, all of the nasty issues and all of the instructions to believers, he deals with in the context of the cross in chapter 1 and the gospel and the resurrection in chapter 15. That those are the two pylons that he establishes in his letter, the cross and the resurrection, the essentials of the gospel. And so even as he is dealing with love and instructing believers about what true Christian love looks like, it's in the context of the foolishness of the cross in the world's eyes and the expectation of the resurrection, the, the expectation that we have of, of standing before Christ. And you know, when you, think about, when you think about what our ultimate expectation is as believers, that one day this life is going to be over. One day we're going to stand before Christ because Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the, he's the promise and the assurance. And when you start to think about church life and body life and, and what we're doing here in light of that, all of a sudden, the, the controversies and, and the conflicts in the, in the church, it just looks silly. 
What, what is that gonna look like when I stand before Christ? And yeah, I, I, was, I was pursuing my own self-advancement in the body of Christ, what? So what Paul does, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and from the grace of God, as he reminds us, no, you know what's gonna matter? What's gonna matter is did you reflect the love of Christ? Did, did you serve the Lord? Did you serve the church? Did you invest in the body of Christ as a reflection of the love of Christ and as a response to the love of Christ? That's, that's what's going to matter when you stand before Christ whom you love. And so when we understand that context and it'll give us a... Uh, a right perspective in, in looking at this chapter. Again, the theme is love is the highest expression of life in Christ. And Paul says at the end of chapter 12, I will show you a still more excellent way or a surpassingly great way. Here, here's the gifts. We're, we're all part of this body. We're unified in diversity with the gifts that God has given to us to serve one another for his glory. But let me, let me go to a surpassingly great description of what we're pursuing. In chapter 13, verse 8, right there in the middle of the chapter, he gives another superlative statement about love. Love never ends. Love never ends. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 13, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. And he'll pick up the discussion in chapter 14 by starting, pursue love. Pursue hard after love. As you look to serve one another with the other gifts, Pursue first and foremost after love. So let's first of all raise this question, what is love? What is love? What is he talking about with this word agape that he is using and describing? Well, love is not what society determines love is. It's not erotic. It's not sensual. In our culture, very often, love is a synonym for what is sensual, for what is fleshly, for indulgence of lust. That's not biblical love. Love, furthermore, is not what you decide love is. In other words, love is not what feels good. It feels good, so it must be right. That person makes me feel good, so it must be a right relationship. He or she makes me feel good. Love is not something that you decide what it is based on your pleasant feelings about something or someone. Love is not even a dictionary definition or a lexical gloss of a, of a Greek word. It's, it's far more than that. And I want to just give then, uh, because I, I just said it's not a definition, I'm not going to give you a definition. I'm going to give you a few descriptions of love. 
that help frame what we'll look at as we dig into this chapter. Love is a divinely given gift. It's a divinely given gift. When we're talking about agape love in Scripture, agape love that Christians have and are called to exercise, love is a divinely given gift that evidences itself only in the lives of believers who choose to walk in the Spirit according to their union with Christ. Love is a divinely given gift that evidences itself only in the lives of believers who choose to walk in the Spirit according to their union with Christ. And I have passages, references alongside each of those statements. Love is a divinely given gift, Romans 5.5. The love of God is poured into our hearts through the Spirit of God, and that's part of, of justification by faith. It's a divinely given gift. It evidences itself only in the lives of believers. Galatians 5, 6. Who choose to walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. According to their union with Christ. Galatians 5, 24. So, Something that's very important to establish is that the love that we're talking about here is impossible without being in Christ. This is not just a humanly generated emotion. This is a spiritual gift that is the result of our of our position in Christ, of our union with Christ. It's only in Christ that we're able to love in this way. Furthermore, love is a reflection of the character of God. God is love. And so as we love, we are reflecting the character of God as new creatures in Christ. Another description from a commentator named Stephen Hankins says, deep concern, love is deep concern and affection for God and men resulting in self-sacrificing actions for the good of those men and the glory of God. The opposite of this quality is self-centeredness, selfishness, and self-consciousness. So that gives us just an overview of the, of the scope of love as we're considering it this evening and as we'll look at how Paul describes it here. I want to go ahead and give you the outline that I'm going to use uh, as a whole so we can stay together as we work through the material tonight. As you can see in verses 4 through 7, there's a, there's a lot of material to work through, and so I'm, I'm hoping to present it in a way that it'll be encouraging and not overwhelming, but to do so, I, I want to give you the structure uh, that I'll use this evening. I'm, the theme we've already established is that love is the highest expression of life in Christ. So main point number one In verses 1 through 7, we'll see that love validates your present life in Christ. 
Love validates your present life in Christ. And I have two subpoints for that. Without love, the greatest accomplishments mean nothing. We'll see that in verses 1 through 3. But then the second subpoint, love reflects Christ's character. So love validates your present life in Christ. Subpoint A, without love, the greatest accomplishments mean nothing. Subpoint B, love reflects Christ's character. And then in verses 8 through 13, we'll have the second main point. Love endures through your eternal presence with Christ. Love endures through your eternal presence with Christ. Love never ends. And so Paul is going to give us two contrasts. The first is that spiritual gifts will vanish before in the face of the complete revelation. And the struggle for sanctification will yield to the completion of love. Love endures through your eternal presence with Christ. Subpoint A, spiritual gifts will vanish before complete revelation. And subpoint B, the struggle for sanctification will yield to the completion of love. So let's look, first of all, tonight in verses 1 through 7, love validates your present life in Christ. Verses 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul points out first that without love, the greatest accomplishments mean nothing. He first identifies verbal eloquence. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, I can speak, I can speak with the gift of tongues, which the gift of tongues is unlearned human language. So in other words, it would be like me speaking in Spanish, having never learned Spanish. It's a known human language that can be interpreted. And we don't have time, and it's beyond the scope of this sermon tonight to demonstrate how that is biblically verified. But the gift of tongues is to speak in a known language that one has never learned for the purpose of spreading the gospel, and it was in the time frame before the completion of Scripture. But Paul says, even if I speak like that, if I can speak in all kinds of different languages, even if I can speak in angelic tongues, whatever those might be, if I have this great eloquence, but I have not love, I'm just like a pagan speaking. In the pagan worship of that time, the pagan worship to Dionysus and Bacchus and others, a lot of that worship involved 
great oratory with clanging cymbals, right? People would get up and make these great speeches and there'd be clanging cymbals and it would be a very annoying, uh, loud event. And, and there's nothing gained. They're just words that are meaningless, And Paul says, if I can even communicate spiritual truth in that way, it's meaningless. The best words without love are just as meaningless as the pagan worship rites. Without love, the greatest accomplishments mean nothing. He goes on in verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. As he talks then about his this towering spirituality, the an ability to untangle theological nuances with knowledge and insight and accurately define the object of faith to get things done, to remove obstacles in faith. But without love, such towering spirituality is nothing. Think about some biblical examples. Balaam. Balaam uttered incredible theology about God. You can read about it in Numbers, I think it's around Numbers 22, 23. Incredible statements about God. God is not a man that he should lie. That's true. He he uttered incredible statements of theology, but he had no love for God or God's people. Jonah. Jonah believed God would save the Ninevites, but it made him mad. He didn't love them. Paul says, look, if I can accomplish great spiritual things, if I have insight, if I understand theology... If I have great faith and accomplish great spiritual things, but there's no love, it's nothing. I am nothing. An evangelist used to describe being nothing as being a zero with the ring rubbed out. That's nothing. I'm nothing. Verse 3, he goes on and describes sacrificial service. If I give away all I have, that's significant. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Sacrificial service, acts of service, whether to others or to God, fall worthless apart from love. Without love, service becomes servile. Without love, the greatest accomplishments mean nothing. But, verse 4, Paul moves on to a description of love. If that's the case, then what does it look like to love? Well, love reflects Christ's character John MacArthur says that in this section in verses 4 through 7, Paul paints a portrait of love and Jesus sits as the subject. 
This is a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love reflects Christ's character. Love is patient and kind. These are the overriding qualities of love. If you, if you think about what verses four through seven is, is like, the, a picture that comes to my mind is, uh, there's, there's a couple pictures that uh, describe this passage. One is that the white light of love is hitting a prism and, and that white light is being dispersed into all the different colors. Another picture is that you have love, and the first two big fireworks are patience and kindness. Boom, boom. And then from patience and kindness, you have all of these other pops that come. You know, you've seen those fireworks shows where you have the big fireworks and then the other fireworks that come. And this, this is kind of the picture that I have in my, in my mind. What does love look like? Well, the overriding qualities, love is Patient and love is kind. Patience is the passive aspect of love. It's being patient, especially with people who arouse your heat, the heat of a heated response. Having a long fuse, putting up with people persistently, avoiding anger, bitterness, resentment, and haughtiness. It's the mind of Christ that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 describes when Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Love is patient. It's able to endure even when wronged. It's able to take the long view and endure for a long time without growing bitter, without becoming proud, without nursing resentment toward the person who might be wronging you. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is the active side of love, It's easy on people, all people, accommodating, gracious, good, easily pleased, agreeable, pleasant and annoying circumstances, generous, and that it works for the welfare of others, even to the unthankful and the evil, pardon me. Love is kind. Kindness often is costly. It'll cost time, convenience, and Money. And when we think about love being kind, again, our, our fleshly way of thinking about love is, you know, I'm going to love people who love me back. I'm going to love the people who it's easy to love. And an, an example of this is, is often in the marriage relationship. When you look at how a husband and wife are called to love one another in submission and in sacrificial love, and you're, you, as a couple, it's like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll submit if he loves me, and I'll love her sacrificially if, if she submits to me. But that's not how it works in Scripture. When God makes those commands to a couple, 
the, each individual spouse is called to reflect Christ in their role in marriage regardless of what the other spouse does. And so it is with love. Love is patient and love is kind, not in response, not because I'm expecting a return for it, but because of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about relationships, I don't remember if I've used this illustration uh, here or recently or not, but you know uh, the way that we like to view relationships is like uh, two cups. And you're one cup and the other person is another cup. And each person has personality qualities, things that are enjoyable that you like about, an, about a person. And you probably have some things that other people like about you. And so when, when people meet one another and, and, you know, there's like, oh, this is a really nice person. And, and you're, you're, letting that person pour into your cup and you're pouring into their cup a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of what people call the honeymoon phase because everybody has a little bit to give. But if you're just looking to that person, pretty soon what they have to offer runs out. And that's when relationships go sour. When I'm looking to another person, no matter what kind of relationship it is, when I'm looking to another person for satisfaction, I'm always going to be disappointed. Always, without fail. People always will disappoint me. And I will always disappoint people. That's just the nature of who we are. Christian love... Christian love, to carry the example a little further, says, you know what? I'm not looking to people to be satisfied. By the grace of God, my desire and goal is to be filled from above with the love of God in Christ. And then when, when I'm with other people, the relationships that I have and the the the, the, the interactions that I have, it's, it's not that I'm looking to get what other people have, it's that I'm looking to give out of the overflow of what I have from Christ. And when I'm looking to give to others and to pour into others out of the overflow of Christ, when there's a satisfaction because of the love of God in my life, and I'm being filled with, with the Spirit and, and walking obedience to the Word of God and recognizing, recognizing how much I have in God and how much I have in Christ, then, then I'm patient and then I'm kind no matter what the response is because I'm not, I'm not loving for the response. I'm loving out of an overflow of what God has done for me. Love is patient. And love is kind. Those are the overriding qualities. Paul goes on to identify several self-refusals. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. The self-refusals of love. Love does not envy. It refuses to hate the success of others. It's not zealous for self. It rejoices and thanks God for the success of others. 
Think about Jonathan and David. Jonathan was a description or, or an illustration of someone who was not envious. He was thankful and rejoiced in David's success. It does not envy. It's not looking at the advancement of someone else as an, I should get that. Love does not boast. It does not parade its accomplishments. It's not boastful of self. It avoids ostentatiousness that cause attention to, to oneself in order to gain admiration or approval. It doesn't set oneself forward. It, it takes the proverb it to heart, let another man praise you and not your own lips. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. It's not proud. It exhibits humility. It recognizes God's goodness and God's grace in life. It's not inflated with personal opinion or importance from a sense of superior knowledge. It's humble. William Carey, who is known as the father of modern missions, was a gifted Bible translator. He, he translated parts of the Bible into 34 languages and dialects. Absolutely mind-blowing. Talk about having, being able to employ different tongues in that way, in, this, in a studied way. He learned them. But one governing authority approached him one day and said, you know, I, I heard that before, before you were a missionary and before you did all this translation work, you, you worked as a shoemaker. And William Carey said, oh, no, my Lord, not a shoemaker, only a shoe repairman. That was the sense of humility. Here I am, yeah, he's translated 34, uh, th- the Bible into 34 different languages, but he sees himself just as a simple shoe, not maker, repairman. Humility. Love is not arrogant. Arrogance is big-headed. Love is big-hearted. Love is not rude. Love is not recognized for its oddities or for its eccentricities, for shamefulness, for being morally inappropriate or making suggestive or inappropriate comments. It's not disgraceful in word or deed to call attention to itself. It always seeks to behave appropriately, to, uh, to uh, deport oneself with, with what is appropriate for the moment and with an understanding of what is appropriate uh, from those around him. It is not rude. And it does not insist in its own way. Hmm. It's self-forgetful. It looks to serve others, not be self-absorbed, generously extending itself to others in word and deed. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul, in this this well-known passage, is reminding believers to have the same mind 
Verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to, only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then to illustrate it, he says, have this mind in, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Love does not insist on its own way. Five self-refusals. We then come to three things that love refuses to do to others. We move from the self-refusals to things that love refuses to do to others. Love is not irritable and not resentful and does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love is not irritable. There's no flashes of anger. It's not easily exasperated. It abstains from developing a short fuse James 1.19 comes to mind. Know this, my beloved brothers. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Love is not resentful. It doesn't remember wrongs suffered. It doesn't keep a record of those things. It doesn't keep books on evil done. It's a horrible accountant of wrongs that other people have done to you. It forgives and chooses to forget. One of the most devastating things to hear in helping people work through reconciliation, and it's always a joy to help people work through reconciliation and to reconciliation, but one of the most devastating mindsets in that process is to hear the rehashing of wrongs done. You need to repent and you need to forgive. I understand that, but... No, you need to repent and you need to forgive. I see that, but... And what happens? Five, ten, fifteen... 20 years of wrongs dredged up. That's not love. That's not love. Love does not remember wrongs suffered. It forgives. It's a horrible accountant. It doesn't keep books. Nor does love rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is a heart attitude. Love refuses to to indulge in secret happiness over the failure of others. Refuses to smugly rejoice in vindication. Does not rejoice when wrong is found in an opponent. No rejoicing in the dark side of another, but chooses to rejoice in what is good and what is true. Now certainly it's not 
And what Paul is describing here, he's not describing ignoring sin that has to be dealt with. He deals with sin, for example, in chapter 5. It's not, that's not what he is describing here. But he's describing a heart attitude of when I've been wronged or when I've been mistreated and then the person who did that to me suffers some kind of misfortune or I am vindicated in my position that the, the attitude that Paul is addressing is an attitude that says, ha, see, I was right. I told you so. No, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing of others or the things that happen to them. It refuses to gossip about those things. It shuts down. It shuts down what would be destructive to other people. Paul captures it well in, first, or in Ephesians 4, 15, 14 and 15 when he says that as the body of, tr- of Christ grows and matures in Christ, that the outflow of that is we learn to speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. So, so we, don't, we don't ignore sin. We don't ignore necessary confrontation for the restoration of the people of God and for the health of the body of Christ. But we speak the truth governed by the love of Jesus Christ as we mature in the Lord. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul closes this section with things that love always does to others. We just looked at what it refuses to do to others, but he concludes by putting forth what love always does to others. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What does he mean when he says love bears all things? Well, love protects. It covers other people's failure by shielding them from public display. It refuses to broadcast other, others' failures verbally and does not dwell on things mentally keeps things in their proper proportion and attempts to compensate for failure while at the same time not covering sin in a wrongful way. It bears all things. Paul, earlier in in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, when he's dealing with lawsuits among believers, he says, why not rather be wronged? That's what love does. When love can take the wrong, when love can take it on the chin, it does so. It bears all things. It believes all things. It accepts another's words without suspicion and deals generously in doubtful cases, prefers to trust rather than suspect, takes people at their word, and gives them the benefit of the doubt. Turn back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Remember in Romans 12, Paul is describing 
our response to the gospel and helping us to construct Christ-like thinking after he's clarified the gospel for the first 11 chapters. But as he, as he works through and describes what life in Christ look like, looks like, look at verse 9, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love believes all things. Again, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Its goal, its goal is to see the best and to give the benefit of the doubt to honor one another in the body of Christ. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. To hope all things is to put the best face on what we don't understand. You know, have you ever had a conversation and you walked away and, and you know, you were defeated and, and you just thought, this person doesn't understand me or I don't understand them or you had other negative responses to that conversation or to what you heard about that person. And then maybe later on, you, you were able to get a full-orbed context of what was going on in that person's life at the time. And then it was like, oh, wow, that makes sense. Boy, did I miss that. See, love hopes all things. It's going to put the best face on what we don't understand. It'll cherish good expectations. What is our expectation for one another as members of the body of Christ? Well, my expectation is that you have the Holy Spirit within you. My expectation is that God is working in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. My expectation is that we're all in different places of growth, but we're all growing. And so love hopes all things. It credits people with good intentions and interprets intentions with generous optimism, giving others the benefit of the doubt when they could be misread. And then Paul ends this section with love endures all things. It puts up with hardship on behalf of others. It triumphantly bears up under the hardships encountered in loving that person. Let me read that again. It triumphantly bears up under the hardships encountered in loving that person. I won't get personal here, right? But I, I think about the people who love me triumphantly and think, wow. <laughs> How hard is it to, bear, to love one another? Are there hardships with loving one another? Oh, absolutely. We're, we're all fleshly. We're all hard to love. But you know what? If we all had the same idea that I'm going to triumphantly bear up under the hardships encountering and loving the next person, that would just simply be us overflowing with the love of Christ to one another. Love endures all things. 
There's a precious example of this in the life of Christ. Turn, if you will, to Luke 22. I love this this statement that Jesus makes on the night that He is going to be crucified. Luke 22, and look at verse 28. Jesus says to His disciples, right after, right after He's identified or right before He's getting ready to identify Peter's denial. And this is what He says in verse 28. You, you disciples, are those who have stayed with Me in My trials, and I assign to you as My Father assigned to Me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at My table in My kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." The weight of those words. You, 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 have, you have stayed with me in my trials. And the next thing he's going to say is that Peter's going to deny him. And Peter does deny him. But love endures all things. And Christ could say, because you're in me, this is how I view you, and this is, this is the reward that you're going to have. You're going to be with me in my kingdom, sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, even though in the next few hours you'll deny me, you'll be restored. Love endures all things. Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on the end of this passage tonight. But we've seen that love validates your present life in Christ. Without love, the greatest accomplishments mean nothing. But then in verses 4 through 7, love reflects Christ's character. Love reflects Christ's character. But in verses 8 through 13, Paul says and and begins that section, love never ends. Love endures through your eternal presence with Christ. He goes on to say, in contrast, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes the partial will pass away. Now there's some discussion about the interpretation of these verses. Is Paul talking about the passing away of the sign gifts when Scripture is completed, which is a theologically sound position because with the completion of Scriptures, there are no more sign gifts. There is no more need for tongues. There is no more need for direct revelation from God. The continuationist position is a theologically aberrant position. The other potential interpretation is that Paul is speaking about 
when we are in the presence of Christ, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. But there's a sense, as with a number of Paul's statements, that in the ambiguity of his language, both senses could be met. So on the one hand, yes, the completed revelation of Scripture eradicates the need for sign gifts. And so he's pointing out the fact love will never end. Love is going to continue through all eternity. In contrast to that, the spiritual gifts, including the sign gifts, especially in in mind in the context here, they are going to come to their completed purpose. They're going to end because their purpose is simply to to, uh, validate the revelation of God about his love to us in Christ. And so they have a limited purpose. So those spiritual gifts are going to vanish before the completed revelation, whether it's the completed revelation of Scripture that eradicates the need for sign gifts, or the perfect revelation of eternity that will eradicate the need for any gifts in the body. Why do we have spiritual gifts? We have spiritual gifts to build the body up as we await the coming of Christ and as we await the fullness of revelation when we're face to face with Jesus Christ. And so either way that we would interpret it, The reality is that spiritual gifts are for this time as we await the coming of Christ. But when love has its full expression, when we're in the presence of Christ, all that's going to be gone. Because when the perfect has come, the partial will pass away. He goes on then in verses 11 In 12, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Love endures through your eternal presence with Christ. The first contrast is that spiritual gifts will vanish before complete revelation. The second contrast is that the struggle for sanctification, the struggle for growth, from being a child to maturing, from seeing dimly now to seeing with clarity in eternity, the struggle for sanctification, for understanding the fullness of what I have in Christ and applying the fullness of what I have in Christ and maturing in Christ, that will ultimately yield to the completion of love when I see face to face and I'm in the presence of Christ. So, We need the spiritual gifts of the body right now to mature in Christ, right? When I was a child, he uses this illustration, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 
So when we're children, we need charts with stickers to help us do the right thing. Right? You know, I hope that most of you adults don't have a sticker chart to help you remember to brush your teeth. But when we're children, we need those kinds of props. And as we mature in Christ, we, we need the gifts of the body. God has given us what we need to mature. But there's coming a day when that, that will fall away. You need the spiritual gifts of the body to understand Christ. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In the ancient times, the mirrors were nothing like our mirrors. It was like, you know, we have Christmas bulbs around our house right now, and, and you know, you can see a reflection, but it's distorted. That was the best mirror they had back then. And Paul is using that, that picture. We see a distorted image. There's an image, but it's distorted. We can't quite see clearly the fullness of all we have in Christ, but the, the gifts that we have in the body, they're here for us to understand with a more robust sense the fullness of who Christ is. But there's coming a day when we're going to see the, the whole thing clearly. We're going to be face-to-face. And we won't need those things anymore. Love never ends. Right now we need the spiritual gifts of the body to live by faith in the hope of Christ's return because of his love. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith will become sight. Hope will be fulfilled but we will love God and we will love one another perfectly for all eternity. Now abide these three. The greatest of these is love. There's no substitute for love. As believers, as those in Christ, we have every reason to love because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us, Romans 5.5. 5. We need only to share the love that's been given to us. We ourselves are taught by God to love one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.9. We're told to pursue love, 1 Corinthians 14, love, 14.1, to put on love, Colossians 3.14, to increase and abound in love, to be sincere in love, 2 Corinthians 8.8, 8, to be unified in love, Philippians 2.2, 2, to be fervent in love, 1 Peter 4.8, and to stimulate one another to love and to good works, Hebrews 10.24. Love, love is the highest expression of life in Christ. And as by God's grace and through the instruction of his word, we continue to pursue love, that is what will continue to make the local body of Truth Community Church be a body that brings glory to God and be a body that truly builds one another up in Christ. Love, love is the highest expression of life in Christ. May the Lord give us grace to pursue love. Father, we thank you 
that you love us, that you first loved us. And that is why we love you. No other reason other than your pursuit and securing of us in love through Christ. And, O Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the many times that we place self above Christ, above you, above what is good for the body. Oh, forgive us for those times, Lord. Forgive us for that that struggle that we have in, in the times that we fall. We long to love you and we long to love one another. And so as we look to Jesus Christ, may we be filled anew with an understanding of his character, an understanding of the abundance of all that we have in him, of the security that we have in him, so that we can love one another freely in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.